All right, well, good morning. I want to welcome you as we begin our, uh, our study through the different books of the Bible. We gave an introduction last week, sort of an introduction to the Old Testament, an introduction to the series. And today we are jumping into the book of Genesis. So I'm going to pray and we'll begin. Please join me. Father, thank you for the gift of your word and the riches it contains, the glory that it reveals to us. I ask that as we uh, just give some of these overviews of books of the Bible, that, uh, that those who listen would be better equipped to read it for themselves, that they would be encouraged and uh, incentivized to engage with the scriptures, to dive in, to take up and read, that they might uh, see you and understand your glory and see your beautiful plan of redemption as it unfolds throughout the ages. We pray for your help this morning and that you'd be glorified as we consider your word. Amen. Well, I thought I would just begin by reading uh, from Psalm 145. You can just listen along. Psalm 145, verse 3, says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the, fr- the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. That really is the project that we are embarking on, is for one generation to declare the glory of God, to rehearse his mighty deeds so that more and more people will hear and be reminded of all that God has done throughout history. So we get to start doing that by jumping into the book of Genesis. Uh, we're going to take Genesis in two weeks because it's a long book. There's 50 chapters because, as we'll see, there's two very significant sections to the book of Genesis. Uh, but today will be part one. I'd like to start uh, just by addressing what is the background, the authorship, and the theme of Genesis. If you're going to read this book, really helps to understand what was going on at the time that it was written, who it was written by, whom it was written to, and what are the theological themes that are being presented in the book of Genesis. So just a number of brief points. The book of Genesis, as many of you probably know, was written by Moses. And it was written by Moses specifically during the wilderness travels, and it was written therefore to and for the nation Israel. So if you can go back a couple thousand years and put yourself in their sandals, so to speak, you've just been rescued by this powerful God who's triumphed over all the gods of Egypt, and you're now wandering through the wilderness. This God has just given you his law. He's come into a covenant with you. Who is this God that you are now worshiping? Who is this God that wants you to serve him? What is he like? And what's the history of your nation? All of that is answered by the book of Genesis. This would have been important for a people that were called to worship one God, to understand that their God was the true God, the creator God, and that the sun and the moon and the stars and the waters and the beasts of the, of the earth were not gods. They were creatures made by the one true God. It was good for them to understand more about their family history, who Abraham was and why he was called and all that God did for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this was written by Moses during the wilderness travels as the people were in between the land of Egypt, but prior to their entry into the land of Canaan. Think about that as they enter into a new place surrounded by all these different peoples that had a claim to the land. They needed to know that the land was promised to them 
and that their God was able to give them that land. So this is very important that we understand who it's written to, when it was written. It's the first book of the Pentateuch, those five books of the law that were written by Moses. The book of Genesis thematically focuses on origins. It gives us, as you all know, the origin of the creation. Where did everything come from? What is the starting point for the material, material universe? Uh, there was a lot of competing stories in Moses' day, competing histories, different mythologies that claimed how the earth and the material world came into being. Was it the result of some divine clash between two different gods? Was it some weird act of procreation by a mother god and a father god? No. The Bible tells us God spoke and everything came to be. It gives us the history of mankind, the story of Adam and Eve and the origin of our human race. And it gives the history of Israel, the origin of Israel as a nation called by God that was um, the result of God's promise to Abraham. He said that he would bless him, make him into a great nation, that his descendants would be more than the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. So Genesis, which means beginnings, that's the, literally the meaning of the word, really focuses on those origins, the origins of the creation and of mankind and Israel and the origin of God's purposes for his creation, his purposes for mankind and his purpose for Israel. In terms of uh, really what Genesis is, it is largely historical narrative, but it's historical narrative with a theological emphasis. If you read Genesis, what you won't find is a history of everything that happened. You will find a very narrow focus, a very specific history, and, and at times where the narrative starts to broaden out and you have multiple sons, you'll often have a genealogy that sort of sets those sons to the side and then focuses in narrowly on the chosen line, on the seed, on the channel through which God is fulfilling his purposes and his promises. So it's historical narrative, but it's historical narrative with a theological emphasis. We have stories, we have records, but it focuses specifically on what God is doing to fulfill his sovereign purpose of redemption. So we need to read it as historical, read it as narrative, but look for the emphasis. Uh, again, there's certain parts of the book that are highly compressed. One chapter can take us through, you know, 10 generations, and then we'll have 10 chapters just on one man's life. So the pace of Genesis changes from time to time because it's tracing very specific uh, theological emphases, which takes us to a specific family and a specific line of history. Um, we should understand Genesis as an essential prequel to the book of Exodus. I think that Exodus is really the heart of the Pentateuch. Uh, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And right at the center of that, for Israel, if you were to ask an ancient Israelite about that book, I think they would have understood Exodus as really the focal point. Genesis is the prequel, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy share what happened after, but the Exodus event and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai in Exodus, that is the heartbeat of the Pentateuch. That's the center of those five books. So think of Genesis as the prequel. Genesis is the backstory that explains how they got there, who they were, and informs the characters of who is this God and who is this nation and what is this land that they're going to and why is it so important that this God would bless them. Uh, so Genesis really sets the stage for the book of Exodus. Even the final words of Genesis are loaded with anticipation. It ends that they laid Joseph's body in a tomb in Egypt. It's the last words in Genesis. It's setting the stage for what happens next, a people that are in Egypt who need to be led out of Egypt and back to the homeland that God had 
promised them. So read it through that lens. Read it as a prequel to the book of Exodus. And then finally, in terms of themes in this book, uh, the book of Genesis introduces God's redemptive plan. If you were to sum up the theological theme of Genesis in a word, it would be blessing. It's blessing. We see that God blesses the creation. He makes everything and he calls it very good. That's quite the blessing. He forms Adam and Eve and blesses them. He blesses them and tells them be fruitful and multiply. He gives them this mission and it's even a blessing that they get to bear the image of God and they get to be his representatives in the earth and carry out his will on the earth. So God blesses the creation. He blesses Adam and Eve. But as we know, there's a lot of cursing as well. And when Adam and Eve sin, there's a curse that falls on mankind and on the created order. As we see Cain killing Abel, as we see um, wicked men like Lamech boasting of their wickedness, as we see a world that gets so awful that God has to send a flood, as we see the Tower of Babel and mankind once again rebelling against God, there's a lot of judgment and cursing. So that helps form a contrast with the blessing. There's blessing and cursing, blessing and cursing. And against the backdrop of all that cursing, you have God coming down in chapter 12 to speak to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you. So blessing is really the key theme, theological theme. And this blessing is more than just, I'm going to make your life nicer and more comfortable. I'm going to make you successful and happy and healthy. No, the blessing is specifically relationship with God. That's the blessing that was lost in the garden, and that's the blessing that God is at work restoring through his covenant with Abraham. So the theological theme of the book that introduces God's redemptive plan is blessing. Let's talk about the structure. I'm going to give you a Hebrew word. It's called toledoth, and it's basically a word for generations. And the author, Moses, uses this word, and he uses this uh, literary structure of, of inserting these genealogies, these family trees, throughout the book of Genesis. And that's sort of like the little chapter dividers, uh, for the book. And we'll just walk through this very briefly. But we see it in chapter 2 when he says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It's a history of the creation. The next uh, Toledoth we find is the generations or the genealogy of Adam in chapter 5, traces the, the, the human history to that point. We find the generations of Noah and his descendants in chapter 6, and his story continues on through chapter 9. We find the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those are Noah's sons. As they get off the ark, there's a new chapter, a new uh, chapter in human history. And so their descendants are listed there in chapter 10 through 11. But then it narrows to the generations of Shem specifically and starts to follow his family line, which takes us to Terah, who is the father of Abraham. Abraham fathers uh, Ishmael. We have the generations of Ishmael. But then Ishmael is set aside because Ishmael is not the chosen line. So after sort of wrapping up Ishmael's storyline, we have the generations of Isaac. It's through Isaac, the son of promise, that God's plan is going to continue. And then we have the generations of his son Esau, who is not the chosen line. Esau, though he is blessed to an extent, is not a recipient of the covenant. <clears throat> so the generations of Esau wraps up his family line, sets him aside, and then focuses specifically on his twin brother Jacob. And chapter 37 through chapter 50 is the history of the family of Jacob, Jacob and his 12 sons. And there's a lot of time dedicated to his son Joseph, because again, that moves us towards the story of the Exodus. <clears throat> so you don't need to have all these memorized. You don't need to even write all these down. 
But every time you see these little markers, these are the generations of, that is a literary marker that sort of subdivides this book up into 10 different sections. And as you do that, you can see what the focus of the author Moses is doing. He's focusing on creation and then on human history, but then human history specifically through Noah and his sons, specifically through one son, Shem, because through Shem comes Terah and Abraham, through Abraham comes Ishmael and Isaac, but through Isaac comes Esau and Jacob, and through Jacob comes the nation Israel. So it narrows everything down. That's sort of a literary device you will find throughout the book of Genesis, and it's something to be aware of as you read. Those are key markers that help us turn the page to the next scene in the story. But I think there's a simpler way to divide it up, and that's how we're going to handle it for the purposes of this class. There's really two primary sections in the book of Genesis. The first is what you might call the primeval history. The primeval history. This would be chapters 1 through 11. Um, Just some of the highlights from this section is that the primeval history deals with, in the big picture of what's going on in the creation, the creation and the fall. God making everything, making it good, Adam's sin, and subsequent consequences of that sin. We find the story of Noah, the destruction of the earth with a flood, the rescue of this one man and his family, and God's covenant with Noah, and his covenant with the creation, not to do that sort of thing again. That's why he gives the rainbow as a sign for it. And then we have the the narrative story of Babel, how after this act of judgment and sort of a new creation and a fresh start, Noah is sort of like a new Adam, and we get a fresh chance, and we see that Noah has the same problem that was passed down from Adam. He's a sinner, his kids are sinners, and right off the bat, we see that Noah is dishonored by one of his sons, he pronounces a curse, and it's like watching a replay. We're saying, we've seen this movie before. We have a new creation, we have blessing from God, we have a commission that's given, and then we have human beings sinning and messing everything up again, which results in cursing. So we find that no amount of starting over is going to fix it. There has to be a fundamental change. God has to intervene. So that's the story of Babel. We we find that Noah's descendants eventually become large enough where they collectively rebel against God. They refuse to scatter and populate the earth. They instead try to build a tower to heaven, and God has to judge them. And just like Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, the people at Babel have to be scattered and driven to the, the corners of the earth because they won't do what they're supposed to do, which is spread out and multiply and fill the earth. So God confuses their languages. So these stories, the stories of the creation and the fall, the Noah narrative, the, the story of Babel, These are big picture, wide angle lens stories about the whole human race, what was going on. And that's chapter one through 11, the primeval history. And then following this section, as we get into chapter 12, through the end of the book, we have what you might call the patriarchal history. So instead of the wide angle lens that focuses on humanity at large, everything that's going on, now we get this close zoomed up focus on one man and one family. It's Terah and his son Abraham. Abraham is called by God to go to a new place. God promises to bless him, make him great. God makes a covenant with Abraham. God enters into a personal relationship with one man. And through this one man, and through this one man's family, he plans to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. We'll look more in depth at those patriarchal uh, histories next week when we cover chapter 12 through 50. But the patriarchal history traces the life of Abraham, the life of his son Isaac, 
and then the, the life of his son Jacob. And I, I would sort of include the Joseph narrative in Jacob's story because it starts with Jacob and it ends uh, with Jacob and his family in Egypt. Uh, and so that's where the book ends. So that's the patriarchal history. The book is pretty neatly divided in terms of its focus into those two sections, chapters 1 through 11, the primeval history, wide-angle lens, and then zooming in on this one family, the patriarchal history in chapter 12 through 50. Just to give a little bit of an overview, we can walk through the book. In chapter 1 through 2, we have God's good creation. God makes everything. He calls it very good. And again, this would have been very important for the ancient Israelites to understand. Where did they come from? And what was their God like? And could they trust their God? Were there other competing gods? Um, I I really believe that chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis are very highly polemical. It's a big word that means argumentative. They're proving a point and attacking something. They're attacking this mindset, this worldview that is polytheistic, that, that sees multiple gods or even sees the creation itself as being divine in its essence. Um, it tells us about God's good creation in chapter 1 through 2 and very clearly makes a distinction between God and everything else and that there is only one God. We have the creation story in chapter 1 through 2. We have the fall of man and a promise of rescue in chapter 3. As we all know, even though Adam and Eve were blessed and given everything to enjoy except one tree, they went to the one tree deceived by Satan. They disobeyed God, ate of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Because of that, a curse falls upon them and upon uh, their, their realm that they represented, the, the created realm. There's a curse even on the creation Everything changes in Genesis chapter 3. Because of that, man's work becomes painful and difficult. Woman's work becomes painful and difficult in childbirth. Her relationships are marred with her husband. But God also gives a little glimmer of hope. There is a promise of rescue in Genesis chapter 3. It's the first hint of the gospel. When God pronounces this curse on the serpent, and he says that the seed of the woman is going to crush his head. That's a promise that God is at work doing something. Even though these people have failed, through their descendants, God is going to raise up a deliverer, someone who will destroy God's enemy and begin to put right what went wrong. So even in Genesis chapter 3, we see the first hint that eventually leads us to the birth of Jesus Christ and the mission of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to deal with sin, to defeat Satan, and to put right what went wrong all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. This is part of the value, the necessity of a book like this. If we don't understand who God is and who we are and what went wrong, we won't understand the significance of Christ and his coming and his work. So Genesis chapter 3 gives us this very, very important and significant event, the fall of man, but also that promise of rescue, that glimmer of grace that comes in that first mention of the gospel. We see the effects of the curse in chapters 4 through 7. Right away, Cain kills Abel. Lamech takes multiple wives and brags about killing people. Eventually, we get to the story of the flood, and we see that mankind is so wicked that God says, I need to start over. I cannot tolerate this any longer. We see that this sin that Adam and Eve committed is passed on to all of their children, and it metastasizes. It spreads. It gets worse and worse. Apart from divine intervention, the human race is going to self-destruct. It only leads to devastation and destruction. So the effects of the curse is chapter 4 through 7, leading up to that 
flood narrative. Following the flood, we see, again, sort of a restart. It's almost like a new creation. The world itself has been literally wiped clean by a devastating flood. And God starts over through one righteous man, through Noah and his family. However, as soon as they get off the boat, we see that it wasn't just the animals and the people that were riding on the boat. That sin virus was present with them. And it got off the boat with them. And we see that sin persists and continues. We see it in Noah's sons. And then we see it leading to the Tower of Babel as mankind rebels again. And there's more cursing as God has to scatter them and drive them out uh, to go fulfill his mission. So this is a bit of a brief overview of chapters 1 through 11. We have creation, the fall of man, and the promise of rescue, the unfolding effects of the curse. In the flood narrative, we have a new creation, but see that sin persists. And as mankind repopulates the earth, they continue to rebel, which only results in more cursing. So this is almost like the bad news, the backdrop that sets us up for what we'll see next week. Against the backdrop of all this cursing, God chooses one man, Abraham, because he's gracious. And God is not going to give up on his purposes for creation or for mankind. He's not going to just say, well, you know, I did my part, but these people kept screwing up. I guess I'm just going to let the thing, you know, burn itself out. No, God insists on intervening and on sovereignly directing his creation and the human race to accomplish his original purpose, that he wants people on the earth who reflect his image, who carry out his will and his desires, and who enjoy relationship with him. What they had in Eden, God walking with Adam and Eve, them enjoying his presence, them representing God by exercising a righteous rule over the garden and cultivating it, bringing it to its fullest potential. That's what God wants for the human race. And he's not going to give up and stop because Satan came in and interrupted because man failed and fell. So that's the overview of chapter 1 through 11, which really sets us up for the patriarchal narratives. What are the theological contributions of Genesis? I think this is a good question we should always ask of every book. What is it theologically that we are learning through the course of this book? Well, there's a lot that we learn about God. We learn that God is the transcendent creator. Those famous first words are that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Meaning that before there was anything, there was God. Before there was anything, there was God. Think about that till your brain hurts. A God who needs nothing, a God who is completely self-existent, self-sustaining, a God who is eternal, a God who is infinite, a transcendent God who is able to speak and everything comes into existence. Genesis teaches us about the power of this God. He's the transcendent creator who's also a lawgiver. He gives Adam and Eve directives. I want you to do this, and there's one thing I don't want you to do. I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, name the animals. You can enjoy all of, these, all of this food. It's for you. But I don't want you to eat from one tree. As the transcendent creator, as the ruler and owner of all the earth, God has the right to make the rules. That's such a fundamental truth that people re- continue to rebel against today. We see it so much in our culture. What we're made as indicates what we're made for. If you're made to be a man, if you're made to be a woman, that design comes with purpose, and it comes with obligation to your designer. What we see going on in our culture right now is a a complete rebellion against our maker. To say, no, I will define myself, I will define my own purpose. It's the same problem 
that Adam and Eve had in the garden, rebelling against the lawgiver, rebelling against the purpose for which we were made. So with design comes purpose. God has the right to make the rules for his creation. He has the right to hold us accountable to do the things that he created us to do. He created us to reflect his image. He created us to have a certain relationship towards each other and towards the world. He created us for fellowship with him. When we rebel against that, it only brings destruction. We see God is not only the lawgiver, he's also the judge. When Adam and Eve violate God's law, what does he do? He sends them out. There's consequences for sin. When the human race rebels against God drastically, what does God do? He sends a flood, and he punishes them. And no one can protest and say, God, that's not fair. God, that's not just. He is the judge, a holy judge who has a right to judge his kingdom. We see that God is also a gracious rescuer. When Adam and Eve sin, and they realize their shame and their nakedness, what does God do for them? He clothes them. It says that God took skins from animals and clothed, clothed, clothed them. I can't say that word. Um, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. It was a sorry excuse. It wouldn't last. It was flimsy. God shed innocent blood in order to cover their shame. It's foretelling the gospel. God is a gracious rescuer. See that God rescues Noah. He looked on all the earth and saw that man was wicked continually. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That's grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. means that God decided to show grace to this man and to his family. God is a gracious rescuer. We see that also all throughout the patriarchal narratives. As God time and time again rescues and provides for Abraham. He rescues Isaac off of the altar by providing a substitute. uh, Providing the, the, the ram that was caught in the thicket. We find his rescue of Isaac, his rescue of Jacob. We find divine rescue of Joseph over and over again as God works through surprising events in his divine providence to bring about a rescue for the whole family, rescuing them from famine. So we learn that God is a gracious rescuer. He's a God who desires to bless, and he does that for his people. We learn that God is the sovereign author of history. The history of the human race and the history of the patriarchal family, of Abraham and his family, as we read Genesis, we see there are no accidents. There is nothing that takes God off guard. He's completely in control at every step. He can create things. He can send a flood but choose to rescue one family. He can confuse everyone's languages and make them do what they otherwise would never do. He can call Abraham and bless him in surprising ways, provide for him in supernatural ways. He can steer all the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers to actually lead Joseph to a place where he's second in command in Egypt. We see that God is the sovereign author of history. So as you read this historical narrative, recognize that God is the one who divinely ordains every step in the process all for his purposes. Despite the failure of man, despite the antagonism of Satan, God is the sovereign author of history. There's a lot more we could say because God is infinite and we can never get done talking about him, but I'm going to move on. Uh, Other theological contributions. Uh, We learn about the creation, that the created realm is material. It's not to be worshipped. It is a thing that is made. Uh, We learn about uh, the creation that it is also valuable. Uh, there's, some sort of, there's some people who have this mentality that what is spiritual is good and what is physical is just disposable and doesn't matter. 
But Genesis gives us a very different view of creation, a God who makes everything and then looks at his handiwork and says, this is very good. A God who has plans not only to redeem human beings, but even to redeem and renew the creation. So we get to the end of the story, we get to Revelation, we find there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and God's original plan for the created realm is going to be accomplished. He's going to restore not just us, he's going to restore his whole creation. So we learn about the created realm, that it is material, it is valuable, and that it's also subject to providential control. God can speak everything into existence. He controls his creation. Uh, God can send a flood. God can dry the flood up. God can change languages. God can do all sorts of things. The The created realm is subject to God's providential control. We learn a lot about mankind. We learn from Genesis that we are image bearers, created in the, in the image of God, male and female. That is a fundamental theological truth, a reality that is so foundational for our entire life. We need to know who we are. We need to understand what we are made to be. And there's all sorts of implications for this reality that we are made in the image of God. We learn that mankind is commissioned. They were given a task to do. God told the man and the woman to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Adam was given a role to be a provider and a protector for his wife. Eve was designed to be a helper who, who, who enabled her husband to fulfill his mission by coming alongside of him and aiding him in that. So we learn about mankind and our, our mission in a, in a broad sense. We learn that we are fallen people. Because of Adam's sin, all of us bear the stain of the curse. All of us carry that, that uh, dysfunction in us. We're all broken. And we see that. We see that over and over again. Even the good guys in Genesis have lots of failures and lots of sins. No one is exempt from this. We find that mankind is fallen and therefore mankind is needy. Adam and Eve can't provide for themselves. Noah can't rescue himself. Abraham can't bless himself. Joseph can't control his own destiny. They all need God. We are needy people who are dependent on God for everything. We learn a lot about marriage and family. We learn about God's design. We learn that it's been corrupted by sin. You know, the New Testament often points back to the book of Genesis. Jesus, in teaching on marriage, points back to Adam and Eve and God's original design and says that that's the standard, that sets the paradigm for all of human history. We learn a lot about salvation. That salvation comes through divine promise. We find a covenant with Noah where God promises to withhold universal cataclysmic judgment on the earth. And we find a covenant with Abraham that promises God is going to provide global blessing, redemption, restoration with him through Abraham and his descendants, which comes ultimately through Jesus. So salvation comes through divine promise. We see that in the book of Genesis. And we also see that salvation comes by grace. Adam and Eve didn't deserve to have God's help to deal with their shame and their nakedness. Uh, Cain didn't deserve to be granted amnesty and sent away instead of immediately put to death for his crime of murder. Uh, Noah didn't necessarily earn his ticket onto the ark. It says he found favor with God. God was pleased to simply show this man grace and through this man Noah to preserve the human race and continue his plan for redemption. 
And we find that Abraham is called while he's a pagan in a different, different land. He's not necessarily a worshiper of God in the sense that um, Israel would come to be later. And we find that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham fails over and over again, but it's his faith in God's promise that is the key. He believes God and it is counted to him as righteousness. This is salvation by grace through faith. Just like we find in the New Testament, salvation has always been by grace through faith. So as we look to Abraham, we see a man who is a hero of sorts. He's in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11 for his faith. But we also know his many failures. And we see that God's gift of salvation to him was not because of all of his righteous works. It wasn't because of his performance, because he was up and down. But it says he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we see all of these theological contributions in the book of Genesis that are very, very important. I really believe if you don't understand Genesis, if you don't read Genesis, you won't understand the rest of the Pentateuch. You won't understand what's going on in the Old Testament. You won't understand the New Testament and the coming of Jesus. This book is essential reading. It is necessary background material for the rest of the Bible. It is so foundational for these central doctrines that we find all throughout God's word. We just have a few minutes left, and I don't know if we'll be able to do any of these justice, but I just want to take a few minutes to touch on three interpretive issues that often come up in these first three chapters of, or first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, Several interpretive issues, and the first has to do with creation. Is creation something that took place in uh, literally in six days? In the, if we were to just read Genesis chapter one in a straightforward, normal sense, Or was the creation more of an extended process that included extended periods of time and the process of evolution? And is Genesis 1 more of a symbolic description of that process? That is a key interpretive issue. And if you want to know more about this, I've preached on this in the past. If you go onto our website, we have a statement in our our doctrinal statement, our statement of faith, Uh, that says our church takes the position, we teach the position of a literal six-day creation. So there's more that can be said on this, and I've preached on that in other places. You can go look that up if you haven't heard us talk about that before. But let me just give you a couple brief reasons why we interpret uh, the first few chapters of Genesis in a literal, straightforward manner. And we take it to be six literal days. Um, First of all, one of the reasons people will often want to move away from that literal view is they say, well, this is poetic, this is symbolic language. The genre of Genesis invites us to read it in a non-literal sense. Um, but I think that's a big reach. Yes, the, the narrative literary features in Genesis 1 are beautiful, and there's a lot of order and symmetry to it, but that doesn't mean it's poetry, and that doesn't mean it's symbolic. There's nothing in the text that would motivate us to move away from a literal six-day understanding. In fact, it seems to be written as history. It's telling us what happened. There's no clues or indicators in the text that would cause us to read it differently. And to be honest, I think those who usually read this differently, they're often motivated by things that are outside the text. And they bring that to the text with them. But we should never give priority, interpretive priority, to something that is outside the text of Scripture. We should let scripture be its own highest authority. And the most straightforward way to read Genesis is as literal history. I do not believe that the genre indicates we should read it symbolically. 
Secondly, we find these numbers throughout Genesis chapter one. On the first day, the second day, the third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day. Um, When you have this Hebrew word yom, which means day, yes, it can have a range of meaning. Um, But when it's paired with a number, and when it's paired with language like morning and evening, the most straightforward way to read that is as sequential consecutive days. So I think the best way to take the word yom in Genesis 1 is as a 24-hour day. Morning, evening, and then a number. It's the best way to read it. Um, A third reason would be that the New Testament treats the creation story as literal. When Jesus and Paul quote and preach on and talk about the first few chapters of Genesis, which they do, pulling the theological implications from it, they treat it as literal. Uh, The law, the Old Testament law, treats it as literal. The seventh day is to be Sabbath of rest because God rested on the seventh day. There's an immediate application of this simple one-week process. So really, the Old Testament and the New Testament treat the creation narratives as literal, not as symbolic, not as a metaphor, not as uh, an allegory, uh, not as a myth. It treats it as literal. And then finally, the logic of the gospel requires that the creation story be literal. It requires that sin be the precursor to death. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And just think through this for a moment. It says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the logic of the gospel, the the very clear doctrinal teaching of the New Testament is that through one man's sin, death entered the world. Now, if the creation story includes this long process of evolution, it means that death and mutation and adaptation death and mutation and adaptation, death and mutation and adaptation, that that's the process that produced man. And the New Testament says the opposite, that man is the process that produced death. So that can only run one of those directions. And if we embrace an evolutionary model that sees man as the product of death, we are denying the gospel preaching of the New Testament that says death is the result of man's sin. So those are just a number of reasons why I believe the best way to interpret and read those first few chapters of Genesis is as literal history, giving us a very straightforward story about six days of creation and God resting on the seventh. And we would, at this church, teach against the view that tries to integrate evolution with God's process of creation. Um, it says that God spoke and it came to be, and it took place over a matter of six days. And we think that that is the best way to read it. There's a second interpretive issue, and this would, refer, this would be the question about the flood. Was Noah's flood, really it's God's flood, but we often call it Noah's flood, was this flood something that took place just in a localized region? Was it just in that Middle Eastern area, in that small area that is sort of the cradle of human civilization where there's a much smaller population uh, before mankind had had time to spread? Or is the flood something that was a global reality? North Pole to South Pole and all around the equator. Uh, there's there's uh, interpreters who will take both views, and some will argue um, that it is a local flood. Um, but again, I think the reason for this is not because of um, factors in the text. It's because of factors outside the text that people bring in and impose on the text. Um, so there's a number of reasons why. Uh, when I preach through Genesis, I preach this as a worldwide, as a global flood. 
Um, and we could get into some of the scientific arguments, and I could probably share with you some scientific evidences that point towards a global flood, and you could probably share you know, other you know, contrary arguments from the scientific realm that point to the impossibility of a global flood. I'm not even going to go into that realm, but just looking at the text, looking at Genesis itself, looking at the Bible, what does the Bible teach about the flood? Well, I think the language of the flood narrative implies a global flood. There's multiple times where we find this phrase, everything under the heavens, refers to everything that has the breath of life under the heavens being destroyed. And another time it refers to all the mountains that are under the heavens being covered with water. So that language of everything under the heavens doesn't indicate local. You know, the North Pole is under the heavens as so is the South Pole. Um, This implies everything on the earth being affected, impacted, by a flood that's at massive scale. Uh, Secondly, when there's other local disasters in Scripture, God simply moves his people to a new location. Uh, When there's a famine, for example, in the land of Canaan, what does God do with his his little nation? Well, the family of Jacob, 70 people, they end up in Egypt. A local flood would not require an ark. It just requires that you take a few days' walk and get out of that region where the flooding is going to happen. And we see that this takes place in other places in Scripture. And finally, I think the New Testament treats the flood as global. Uh, There are some who make an argument that the Hebrew word for earth is the same Hebrew word that can be translated as land. It's eretz. It's the the place. Um, And that's true. The word eretz can mean land or it can mean earth. It can be used in either way. But in the New Testament, Peter, when he talks about the flood... Uh, he uses a, a word, cosmos, and the word cosmos is not a local word. Y- you've heard probably our word cosmological or cosmic. It's all-encompassing. It's big, not small and local. So I think the New Testament treats the flood as, uh, as global. So just as a summary, there's nothing in the text or in other places of Scripture that would motivate us moving away from the straightforward way of reading this story, that it was a global flood. So I'll just leave you with those. There's a lot, a lot more we could say about that, but that's why we teach a global flood um, when we teach through the book of Genesis at this church. There's a third interpretive issue, somewhat related to the first, and that's the question of Adam. Um, this is sort of a subset of the creation question. Is it literal or figurative? Was Adam the literal first man? Was he literally scooped out of the dirt and God breathed into him and made him to be a living soul? Or was he a chosen representative out of an existing population of homo sapiens? Some people take that view. That God stepped in and he chose this sort of unconscious, pre-human creature. And he breathed the breath of life into him and gave him a soul and sort of stamped him with his image. Said, you, Adam, are going to be the representative for this emerging human race. That's some people's view. And other people think that Adam is simply mythological, that Adam is every man. He's simply a sort of personification of the first generation of humanity. Those are sort of three different views that people have uh, on Adam. So how should we understand Adam and Eve? Well, we, not to, you're probably not surprised at this point. We preach that Adam was the first man, a literal man, and that he is God's special creation. Again, nothing in the text indicates mythology. It says God scooped him up out of the dirt. He breathed into him and created him as a man in his own image. Uh, The genealogies throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament treat Adam as a literal figure. It would be pretty strange to have a genealogy that had fake people and real people mixed into it. 
But we find genealogies, both Old Testament and New, that include Adam. We just looked a few weeks ago in the Gospel of Luke about the genealogy of Jesus, which goes all the way back to Adam, the Son of God. Uh, Third, the doctrine of sin requires a literal Adam. Again, Romans 5.12, which we read earlier. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam is literal, and his actual sin is actually passed on to actual people today. Um, There is no myth there. Um, And then uh, finally, the federal headship of Christ requires a literal parallel. We need Adam to be the first man. We need Adam. We need to admit that Adam is a bad representative. Because if Adam is not our literal representative in sin, then how can Jesus be our literal representative as the second Adam to make us righteous? So this idea of federal headship requires that there be a real Adam who really sinned because we have a real Jesus who really died and rose from the dead. And so it's very important that we recognize that Adam was literal, historical, the first man who was specially created by God. He is not some mythological representative of early humanity. He was not simply chosen at large out of this mass of emerging humanity that was the process of evolution and death prior to sin. That just breaks down the whole system of the gospel and the story that, that we're given in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, As by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So I really believe this is one of those issues that is even a gospel issue. Um, There's a little pamphlet we have in our library if you're interested. It's great. It's called No Adam, No Gospel. I think it's a great title that makes a very strong point. So there's some key interpretive issues Um, And there's probably a lot more we could say about that, but that's what we have time for today. I invite you to come back next week as we will give an overview and kind of dive into chapter 12 through 50. God bless you guys. We'll see you in 15 minutes for worship.